Welcome to Reconquest on the Crusade Premium Channel, part of the Veritas Radio Network. This is Brother Andre Marie coming to you from St. Benedict Center in Richmond, New Hampshire. Our websites are catholicism.org and reconquest.net. My email address, should you like to shoot me a, a quick question, suggestion, or observation, is bam at catholicism.org. That's bam at catholicism.org. You can find me easily on Twitter at brother underscore Andre. And I'm also easily found on Facebook. Just search for Brother Andre Marie and you will find me. This evening's show is episode number 208, What and Who is the Logos? My guest is Dr. E. Michael Jones. Dr. Jones is a native of Philadelphia. He earned his Ph.D. in American Literature from Temple University in 1979. After a conflict-filled year as assistant professor of literature at St. Mary's College in South Bend, Indiana, where he had relocated his family to take his new job, his contract was not renewed by the feminists who ran the institution. This unexpected cutting short of his academic career led him to pursue journalism and publishing as his profession, and I should add a certain activism that accompanied that. He launched Fidelity Magazine, which has since become Culture Wars. In addition to hundreds of articles and many short booklets, he has published over a dozen larger books, some of them quite large, on religious, literary, cultural, and historical questions. I'll just name a few of the of the more well-known one. Uh, Degenerate Moderns, Modernity has Rationalized Sexual Misbehavior, Libido Dominandi, Sexual Liberation and Political Control, The Slaughter of the Cities, Urban Renewal as Ethnic Cleansing, um, The Medjugorje Deception, Queen of Peace, Ethnic Cleansing, Ruined Lives. Um, uh, Also um, worth mentioning in that list is um, the... uh, the, the Jewish revolutionary spirit and its impact on world history. So um, lately, though, he's been writing another book that he's been doing extensive speaking about, the, the subject of the book, uh, and that subject is logos, the subject of our show tonight, that mysterious Greek word that means at once work, speech, opinion, reason, proportion, discourse, account, and many, many other things. Uh, it gives us the word logic in English, as well as the logi at the end of our words like biology and theology, which are the study of life and the study of God, respectively. Uh, many are very excited about the publication of this long-awaited book, Logos Rising. I can count myself as, as one of those. I, I look forward to getting it. Uh, my own beloved mentor, who is himself a philosopher, Brother Francis, had a great deal to say on this subject of logos. He used to speak about how the Greek word logos was much like the Latin word ratio, something polyvalent in its meaning and therefore untranslatable with a single word. It is the insight of my guest tonight that this word logos gave the evangelist St. John the ability to communicate the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to the Greco-Roman world with a success previously unachieved. So, without any further ado, I'll bring on Dr. Jones. Good evening, Dr. Jones. Good evening, brother. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate it very much. You're welcome. Now, I, thank you. I've entitled this show, What and Who is Logos? So let's get right to the what and consider Logos as we know it from the Greek philosophers. So c- could you talk for a moment about the pre-Socratics like Heraclitus and some of the others who, who started to talk about Logos in a philosophical way? Yes. Um, the, the, the initial, uh, uh, there's never been a time when human beings did not speak about God have a word for God, have some type of understanding that God was a father who lived in the sky. 
Uh, and they knew this, and they began to speculate on these ideas. And they, they, they went down a blind alley called mythology. And one of the best explanations, uh, uh, examples of mythology would be uh, Homer's poems, the Iliad, the Odyssey, where you have gods who are really not gods, okay? They're kind of super superheroes, uh, superhuman beings that get into fights and quarrels with each other and have favorites down here on Earth and so on and so forth. Uh, they're not God, okay? It's clear that this is this. These are not. Even if you use the plural, you can't say that it's God. As soon as you're using the plural, you're in uh, bad territory. Uh-huh. Uh, one of the people who figured this out was Socrates, and as a result, he wanted to ban poetry because he felt that this these gods gave bad example. They were Zeus would turn himself into some type of form and have sexual intercourse with women. So it was a bad, bad idea. It was a dead, a dead end, and the smarter Greeks knew that. What happened uh, in Ionia, which is the uh, western shore of uh, Asia Minor, Greek colonies there, and cities like Miletus, is the birth of what was probably uh, considered physics. Uh, basically, uh, trying to see if the world uh, could give us some understanding of what ultimate reality was. So they had the sense there's an ultimate reality because everybody has this sense. Uh, they, they had a sense that mythology was just t- uh, stories for children. Uh, and so we're not going to go down that path. We're going to look at the world and see what it can tell us about ultimate reality. And so the first man to do this was Thales, um, who said everything was water. And, and then, uh, Anaxagoras came along and said everything was air. And at this point, you're starting to see uh, these these elements, these physical elements, start to have meaning above and beyond themselves. So you could say that uh, if everything's water, is the beginning of things water? Water was a symbol for chaos, and that's what Hesiod had said in the, the uh, Theogony. The, the chaos was at the beginning. But then when you get to air, it's uh, you're getting even more spiritual, if you want to talk about that, in terms of an element. Uh, so you could, it's it's our surrounding us, it's it kind of, we move, live and move and have our being in this. We breathe it in, we breathe it out. Uh, it, it, it became symbolic of the soul. It's spiritus' breath and soul. Uh, so we're, get, we're getting uh, more and more abstract and then... Uh, Heraclitus comes along and says it's fire, and uh, that's a, pre- a, a, a kind of modern understanding because fire is another word for energy, and there's something to that. Uh, Werner Heisenberg would agree with that in some sense, but he also started going beyond that. He started using the word logos, and in in this we have a term that is completely immaterial completely spiritual, and this was the launching pad for uh, metaphysics. I, I think it's noteworthy that the historians of philosophy tell us that Heraclitus was the first one to come up with systematized philosophical thought, and he was also the first one to use logos in this philosophical way that you just described. Yes, uh, and uh, some people feel he was a Persian. You have, you have this confluence of Greek and Persian culture. 
uh, because it's the Persian Empire that rules Asia Minor, and this is on the, the these are Greek colonies in Asia Minor. Uh, and some people say that uh, uh, Heraclitus got the idea of fire from Zoroastrianism, ah. which worships fire. Uh, uh, yes, you, he, 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 there's a contested issue here about the relationship between Heraclitus and Parmenides, because Parmenides was also important. Nobody even knows who came first. It could be that Heraclitus came first and said that everything is flux and being, uh, and Parmenides came afterwards and said, no, that's not true. There's yeah. no change at all. But uh, Parmenides is important because he started talking about being uh, a, a completely abstract term. And his famous statement was basically that that which is cannot come from that which is not, which is an incredibly profound statement, if you think about it, because it's basically the refutation of Darwin. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Yeah, and, and of course, the, the, the ultimately, the, the reconciliation. So you're talking about the two ancient schools of Iona and Elia, the Eleatic and the uh, Ionic schools. They had, uh, they were profoundly in conflict, but the resolution of that conflict gives us an awful lot of insight. As you just said, once you understand being in the, this principle of stasis that Parmenides appreciated, and then you understand the, the concept of flux and change that Heraclitus um, g- gives us or gives us insights into, then, then the concepts of substance and change and accident and all these things take on, you know, the, the, those suddenly answer the questions that were asked by these earlier guys, right? No, I don't think they answered any questions. They posited something, and then you come up with a kind of paradox and a conundrum. Zeno was a, f- a follower of uh, Parmenides and c- created his paradoxes uh, basically to refute the critics of Parmenides, but they're paradoxes. Yeah. And you just kind of stand there and scratch your head, uh, and you think, uh, I, I don't know, how do we? How does this all fit together? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, it doesn't. Yeah. Well, I didn't. I didn't mean to suggest that they were asking questions that the later philosophers actually answered. What I meant was, in in their saying what they did and bringing out these conflicts between these two different schools and Zeno's, uh, um, uh, you know, the, 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 like proving that an arrow could never reach from the archer to the tree and, and these unprovable things. Um, the whole concept is that they were sort of bumping around in the dark and later philosophers would come up with the insights needed to, to, to answer them and to bring out the truth in contrast to the error that was in these early systems. Yeah. But the but the the ultimate result of the pre-Socratics was that uh, everybody it just collapsed uh-huh. because they did they they were examining the world as they saw it and they didn't have instruments to examine it in any greater detail. There's no such thing as a microscope or a telescope at this point, and so uh, it, it it just they just said, well, that's about as far as we can go, and then nobody went any farther, and they just shifted their the focus uh, and shifted into more human concerns. Uh, and more th- things like how to win lawsuits and stuff like that. And this this group was known as the Sophist. And uh, these are the people that basically uh, brought gave birth to Socrates, who argued with the Sophists, who were basically saying that ma- man is the measure of all things, and it, it doesn't really matter. The, the, you don't really have to answer these ultimate questions. And uh, that's not the way Socrates felt. And so you have uh, at the beginning of... Uh, uh, of uh, the Republic, Plato, Socrates taking issue with uh, Thrasymachus, who said that uh, 
justice is the opinion of the powerful. And they're saying, no, they can't, that can't be the whole. It seems, the world seems that way. In our, in our darkest moments, we always feel that way. But that can't be the ultimate uh, explanation. Uh, so there's got to be something more to that. And, and that led to uh, Plato. And Plato uh, basically came up with the idea of God, uh, forms which are immaterial things. So we're way beyond water and fire now. We're into immaterial forms, but uh, couldn't tell us where they were. Uh, 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 Something that his pupil Aristotle raised, well, uh, where are these forms then? And he couldn't say. Uh, And he couldn't explain the relationship between the form and the the demiurge, uh, who was the worker of the people who used these forms to create uh, the earth. Uh, and uh, so he couldn't answer that question. And Aristotle came along and answered it for him, made a big breakthrough and said, well, the form is in the thing itself. It's called intellecti. And and uh, basically, uh, he also came up with the solve the problem of change with coming up with potency and act. And he also made the big step forward in finally defining what God had to be. OK, it wasn't a guy with a beard it was the uncaused cause and the unmoved mover. And that's true. He, 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 he said you can't have an infinite regression here. Something's got to stop. If you, have, you can have a, 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 a line of boxcars and you can ask uh, why is, what's pulling the caboose? And it's the, the box. This is Ed Fazer's uh, explanation. It's uh-huh, a boxcar. Uh-huh. Well, what's pulling the boxcar? Well, it's another boxcar. Well, you can't have an infinite line of boxcars because they don't they don't have any principle of mo- mo- motion in them. It's got to be a locomotive at the end. The opposite would be, you know, you can have an infinite amount of cement uh, to build your bridge. But if, unless you hit bedrock, something that doesn't move, uh, it's not going to work. So that was a profound step forward. And he created the God. That's what God is. He's the uncaused cause and the unmoved mover. And he's perfect. And he lives in eternity. And that's great, except. If he's perfect, does he care about us? And Aristotle simply could not answer that question. Probably not. Yeah, because he, because if he's perfect. Why would he care about you? And so you had you had basically an impasse here. You had a Platonic God that cared for you, but you couldn't really call him the uncaused cause and unmoved mover. Uh, and you had the uncaused cause and unmoved mover in Aristotle. But you then you how does that totally immobile God relate to motion? in this world and he didn't come up with that answer and so once again philosophy stopped i mean it's no coincidence uh, at least in god's mind that uh, aristotle's student was philip uh philip of macedon philip of macedon no it was alexander the yeah, great philip's son, philip's philip son Mac- yeah philip's son uh who then conquered the world and spread Greek philosophy, Greek thought, all to, throughout the known world. And that, in effect, prepared the world for the coming of Christ. You're listening to Reconquest on the Crusade Premium Channel, part of the Veritas Radio Network. This is Brother Andre Marie. I'm interviewing Dr. E. Michael Jones on what and who is Logos. Okay, so we've we've gotten up to Aristotle, Dr. Jones, and uh, what, what I'd like to do is sort of take a break from the, from the Greeks and just, just make a, an observation. We have the... We have the pre-Socratics giving us the concept of Logos around the 6th century BC. Uh, this works up to the time of, of um, uh, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, um, around uh, a few hundred years after that. 
But that 600-year mark, that 600 B.C. year mark, that's roughly contemporary with the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And they're giving the Old Testament faithful more and more revelations about the coming of the Messiah and what his times are going to be like. Do you think that that there's a sort of twofold preparation? The, the, the Hebrews are being prepared with explicit revelations about the Messiah in their own unique, you know, sort of Semitic language terms. And then at the same time, without the benefit of, of the, this full supernatural revelation, the Greeks are, are being prepared for this concept of natural thinking that's later going to merge into this beautiful synthesis with the coming of Christ. Yes, the, the, that's the remarkable thing, I think. I mean, wh- I think we're, we're used to looking at the Hebrew scriptures as the kind of straight line here. And of course it is. Uh, and if we're talking about this, the entry uh, of this concept into human thought, it, it would go back farther than that to about 1300 BC when Moses was on Mount Horeb and he asked Yahweh who he was. You know, tell me who you are so I can tell the people. And God said, I am who am, which means self subsistent being, but no one really, which is analogous to what I just said about Aristotle, Aristotle's God. But this is obviously a God who is not content to just be off by himself uh, in in that abstract realm. This is obviously a God who's uh, interfering uh, in human history. Uh, And this was the God that the Hebrews uh, were, that was their tutor. They were tutored by God himself, a completely different pattern. So you have revelation here among the Hebrews who have, a, a, a sense of history, purpose in history, but no real philosophical understanding. I mean, I, there is the wisdom literature, but no real deep philosophical understanding. Oh. And on the other hand, you have the Greeks who have this deep philosophical understanding, but no sense of history. And these two things then come together in Christianity, now, largely with, uh, uh, with the addition of the Roman Empire which succeeded the Greek Empire as the administration of the world at that time. Now you say now you say that the Greeks have no sense of history and you're contrasting them to the Hebrews when you say this. Uh, so I, what what I get in my mind when you say that is that in the Hebrew scriptures you're constantly getting these litanies of names, these genealogies, right? Um, and obviously, if they have, if the Jews have anything, I mean, the faithful of the Old Testament, the Hebrews, Israelites, whatever they're called at various times, if they have nothing else, they certainly have a sense of their own history and a sense of God's providence and directing their movements from place to place and so Absol- forth. Absolutely, absolutely, and also more importantly, they have a sense of creation, which the Greeks did not have at all. Our Aristotle thought that the the universe was eternal. Uh, and and this will lead to a conflict later, you know, a, a millennium uh, uh, later, uh, with especially with the Muslims. But yeah, you, that's that's exactly that's exactly what they have. You know, you have these two groups of people. Uh, 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 two and the, the significant thing from my point of view is that God uh, validated what the Greeks did. And I say that because the man who brought these two traditions together is. St. John. Uh-huh. And, and uh, you're right. They, the, the, the Hebrews had this sense of history, and so the other Gospels begin with the genealogy of Jesus, which is good if you're a Hebrew, but it's completely meaningless if you're a Greek. I never, he ne- they never heard of these people. Who are these people? I don't know. And I think that the man who 
struggled with us the most was St. Paul. Obviously a Jew himself, but a raised in a Greek world, could speak fluent Greek, which St. Peter could not do. And so was the, the designated emissary from the Hebrew world to the Greek world. The Greek world just, the Hebrew world expelled him. Okay, they expelled him from the synagogue. He had a vision uh, and there was somebody calling him from Greece and he went over there. And uh, I, my feeling is that uh, he, he, went, he ended up in Athens. He went to the Areopagus, which is a, an elite club of philosophers. And I, I, this is what I claim in the book. He made the wrong speech. <laughs> yeah. he, gave, he gave the Ephesus speech in Athens. Ephesus is where he was. St. John was there as well. The Blessed Mother was there. And uh, it was a town that was uh, worshipped uh, Diana uh, and had uh, uh, the, the entire economy dependent on silversmiths making little statues of Diana. That was idol worship. Yes. Uh, when he went, to, when you go to the talk to the philosophers, you're talking to a different group of people. You're talking to people who know about Aristotle and the uncaused cause and the unmovable. That's not idol worship. And so he gets up there and he gives a speech and he says, you know, you know, I'm here and I want to tell you about this man. And this man rose from the dead. And at that point, they say, what? Uh, well, we'll talk about this some other time. And they all walked out. And Christianity took another 500 years before Christianity was established in Athens. So I think what I think uh, I'm, I'm saying that St. John knew about this failure and he knew that he could not write the, the same type of Hebrew genealogies that the other gospel writers had written because it didn't make any sense to these people. He had to tell who this man was, not, not, not that he wrote. You don't even tell us who he is. And you said he rose from the dead. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, and they rejected it. So John, St. John wrote the gospel with that in mind. And he said, I'll tell you who he is. I'll say in the beginning there was Logos, which is his recapitulation of the first sentence of Genesis. So this is like a new Genesis. And Logos was with God and Logos was God. Now that's Greek. Now you're using, you're writing in Greek, you're using Greek vocabulary, and you're using probably the most important word in the Greek language. And you're saying, this is who this guy is. So he was speaking metaphysically, he wasn't speaking historically, or... This is a metaphysical treatise here. This is completely metaphysical, and that's why it's geared, uh, it's music to Greek ears, or at least it's comprehensible to Greek ears, because they know about this tradition. And the, 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 the startling thing here is that basically here's God saying, you know, th these Greeks were onto something. It's not Hebrew revelation, it's not God instructing them, but it's still worth... Uh, it's still worth validating. It's it's worth taking seriously, and we're going to take this seriously. We are going to take the human effort, unaided human reason, and all with all the mistakes it made. But we're going to take it seriously, and we're going to write in Greek for this audience using Greek vocabulary and Greek philosophical concepts. That was a huge breakthrough, I think. But it was also a huge kind of synthesis where now you're bringing together the the Hebrew and the, the Greek tradition. So what you're saying is, and this is the two parts of the book, there is a history to Logos, which is important, and that's what we just talked about, but there's also a Logos to history, which is equally important, and that's what you get from the Hebrews. And so the whole point of this now is to meditate. How, how do these, these two things come together? And I think the man who did it first 
whoever did it and who did it best was St. Augustine, who tried and tried to come up with, uh, who tried to be a philosopher and and realized that, uh, tried to be a Platonist philosopher, tried to withdraw from the world, tried to believe, uh, put into practice otium liberali, this leisure, uh, uh, the, the, the leisure to contemplate forms and rise to the level of forms. And realize it, it can't do it. Sorry, you can't do it. And then in the same moment he realizes you can't do it, you realize, well, I don't have to do it anymore. I don't have to go up because God came down. And the incarnation has changed everything, And in, in especially uh, in terms of human history. And so the city of God is not only a justification of, of um, defending Christians as saying they're not responsible for the fall of Rome. It's also a, a way of saying there is a purpose to history. And I, I'll try and give you the basics of it. It's the city of God and the city of man. City of God is love of uh, God to the extinction of self. The city of man is love of self to the extinction of God. And that those are the two parameters the two uh, poles of human history, and that will be true till the end of time. So now we have time that has, time has a meaning, which it did not have in Aristotle. Time, Aristotle said time was the number of motion. Uh, that doesn't say much. There's no history in, in that type of time. It's just ball planets or the stars moving around in circles, and that's that. Whereas Augustine came up with a completely different kind of time, which is uh, fulfillment of God's purpose, divine providence. You're listening to Reconquest on the Crusade Premium Channel, part of the Veritas Radio Network. Um, this is Brother Andre interviewing E. Michael Jones, and we are talking about what and who is Logos. So when the when the when the when Saint John t- grasps this this important um, polyvalent Greek word Logos, uses it very philosophically, very metaphysically in the beginning of his in the prologue of his Gospel. Uh, later, you say Saint Augustine takes takes this this concept. Um, of logos, and he did write, he did comment extensively on on the prologue of Saint John's Gospel and and what the word means, um, and and he gives us a, a, a theology of history, sort of taking that sort of the great Hebrew value of of the study of history, but laying it on top of the rational conceptions and the metaphysical conceptions of the the Greco-Roman world that he had inherited as a Neoplatonic philosopher. So between the time of St. John and St. Augustine, Christians are taking this term, this concept logos, but they're also purging it of the very serious errors that, that the Neoplatonists and others had. I think you should talk a little bit about it, if you wouldn't mind, um, uh, the, 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 the Jewish philosopher, the Jewish Neoplatonist, um, uh, or Middle Platonist, I think, uh, Py- uh, Phy- uh, Philo, who gives us something uh, like a Logos, that's the Demiurge, uh, right. but he's not divine, he's not personal. No, no, and that's the problem here. So basically, for the next about four centuries, you're going to talk about the second two sentences of the of the prologue of St. John's Gospel. And Logos was with God, and Logos was God. What does that mean? What does that mean? It basically, it came down to mean that we're talking about the Trinity here. Yeah. And the problem here is that Philo missed the boat. Okay. Because there, there, there is always this, 
normally the the Jew wants to hold on to this obsolete covenant, you know, and the law, the obsolete law, and all that other types of stuff. But Philo was in Alexander, and he wants to hold on to an obsolete Platonism, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, which was interesting for from the point of view of a Jew. You know, he completely converted to Platonism, but he didn't understand that Platonism was obsolete now uh, because uh, of this new concept of the Trinity. So Philo felt that the Logos, that God created the Logos. No, that means that the, that the Logos is a creature. Yeah. Well, no, uh, that's that is one of the biggest mistakes that got made at this point, because you had all of this debate uh, of uh, what is the, the what is Jesus Christ? What is he? Is he the son of God? Is he like God? That's what the Arians said. Is he like God? Is he created by God? In that sense, he's a creature. If he's a creature, he's just like us. He's no different than us. If he's no different than us, then he cannot be the demiurge. Yeah. So this is, is origin said that uh, the logos was the demiurge. Now, obviously, that's a metaphorical. That's wrong. It's a, he's a heretic too. Yeah. But he's coming close to understanding of what we're talking about. You needed some type of demiurge uh, to 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 because otherwise God is transcendent and not imminent. But the demiurge is imminent, so therefore he's not transcendent. So you've got a bind here, and the only solution to this bind is the Trinity. And the solution to understanding the Trinity is basically that God did not create the Logos. He begat the Logos. Uh-huh. So this is, so, so as St. John Chrysostom said, I, I tripped across this quote when I was, uh, when I was uh, doing my preparation. He points out that John 1.1 tells us that the word is not just any word, but is an hypostasis, which is the technical Greek word that they would have used for person uh, in, in the Trinity. Um, so he's a distinct Trinitarian person. And of course, St. John tells us that God created all things through the Logos, which which would sort of agree with what these these uh, middle uh, Platonists would have thought too, if they took this sort of created demiurge as the principle through which all things were created, all lower creation. But Saint John's saying, no, this is, this is a divine person. He's he's transcendent. The, the crucial thing is that the, if it's a divine person, then you don't need a divine universe, or the divine, or the particular part of it is the heavens. Are the heavens divine? Well, yeah, they are, if, if you're a Greek. They're, the universe is eternal and the heavens are divine, and this becomes a roadblock to understanding anything. Because then, it, basically, you have this mechanistic uh, transmission of power from God to the earth uh, through these spheres. Uh, they're, they're kind of rubbing against each other, making a little noise, you know, the celestial music. And that's how God communicates his power to the earth. Well, that's obsolete. That's pla- that's Platonistic emanations. Uh, it, it will come back again and again. But the, 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 a true understanding of the Logos as the second person of the Trinity as uh, uh, makes all of this unnecessary. Yeah, it's unnecessary. Now, now, so Saint Thomas would later grab this, and the other scholastics would would take the term logos and and say, well, this is how the word, this is how the Son is generated by the Father. He's he's uttered. So that this concept that we have, uh, we 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 use the word concept. And we say that a woman conceives when she's pregnant. We also say that I conceive an idea in my mind. That 
th- those are both realized in a sense in in the generation of the son in the bosom of the father. Absolutely, absolutely, and 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 yes, it's so profound that it's going to take centuries to unpack it, and we're still unpacking it. But basically, also, you also solve the problem of the forms now because the forms are are ideas in the mind of God. And in a sense, everything is an idea in the mind of God. So that's where that's where the logos, uh, what we what we refer to the logos or the order of the universe. That's where it comes from. It comes from the mind of God. So in this, so in the, in the, in the classical Greek sense, logos means one of the most elevated meanings is sort of the rational order of the universe. Right. And right. and now we know that that rational with revelation with the revelation of the New Testament we now know that that rational order of the universe exists because the logos who was who is eternally begotten of the Father is also He through whom all things were made and without Him was made nothing that was made. Right, and that solves that problem because the logos is not just a plan; it's not just geometry; it's a person. And it's a person who can act, but not not only act, his action, his thoughts are reality. His thoughts are realities. Okay, and and this is the basis of divine providence. So it's not just a a guy. It's not just there's a plan and there's a guy and he's got a hammer and he's going to put the plan up and he's going to hammer away. That's not the way it is here. The plan and the and the uh, the the uh, the person are the same thing. Huh. And when and when that plan when that plan is it, it comes into being th- through the word pronouncing the word uh, uh, creates being here that's the only being where that happens you can pronounce the word and nothing is going to happen the house isn't going to get built because you pronounce the word house uh-huh. but precisely what happens with God and to the, what what we when you take the the whole total big picture in mind that's called divine providence. Uh-huh. So, so all of human history now is basically that's that word spoken by God. So St. John talks about these sort of two momenta uh, that we have in, in the Logos as far as his interaction with creation. So the first mo- uh, momenta is God is that he creates, that he's the creative Logos, through him all things are made. But he's also the redeeming Logos, because through him all of those who will be saved are saved. They're all, you know, all of humanity is redeemed. So there's this kind of, as it were, double motion of the Logos, working as creator and then as savior, and this makes me think of a passage in, in, in St. Paul to the Colossians where he's talking about um, all things are made by him. And then he says, and then he is the head of the body, which is the church, the firstborn of the dead. So that, that he, he works in the world as creator, and then he works in the world in a, in a different way, in a, in a deeper way, in a more touching way as its savior and redeemer. Yes, yes. Now... The, at this point, at this point, we we ha- we need to talk about the Holy Spirit as well. Okay, I, I was going to bring that up. Do you mind? So, do you mind if I pitch this no, at go, you go, in a specific? Go ahead. go ahead. Okay, so so in 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 Trinitarian theology, obviously logos has a great value because now we understand something of the ineffable generation of the Son from the Father. Um, so we call him also eternal wisdom as well as word and son. Um, but then he's not the only other divine person aside from the Father. Um, the Father and the Son behold each other and love each other perfectly, and that love itself 
coming from the, them both as one principle is the Holy Ghost, who is substantial charity or substantial love. So then we have the being of the Father, the knowing of the Son, and the loving of the Holy Ghost. Right, uh, right. So now, now, all that said, has it ever struck you as significant that the same St. John that you were talking about, who got this tremendous insight about Logos in the prologue of his gospel, also wrote, I think, the most sublimely about charity in his epistles, especially in 1 John chapter 4. It's all about charity. And St. Jerome relates a story that towards the end of his life, all he could say was, brethren, love one another. Right. Well, that's that's the action. That is the motion in eternity. It's love. This action, this constant action flow of love, uh, this uh, in from God the Father to God the Son to God the Holy Spirit and back and forth. That is the motion at the heart. So it turns out that uh, it's not static. Uh-huh. It, it's alive. Yeah, and it, God is and, pure, and, pure and love, act. And so love uh, then becomes the principle of the universe, the fundamental principle of the universe, uh, because God is love. So God is Logos, and uh, God is love, so therefore Logos is love. And Logos, this fundamental force in the universe, is love. So now, uh, the the um, the way that I had conceived it when I was um, coming up with this, where I had noticed this thing with St. John, you know, yeah, he's very deep on Logos, and then he's very deep on charity as well, um, was that you can't really love, you can't love rightly, unless you love in a way that's, that's supernaturalized and sort of metaphysically ordered to the truth of Logos. So Logos, for, for, to have charity, you have to have Logos first. Well, I mean, love is, love is meaningless unless it's connected with reality or connected with the truth. Uh-huh. Uh, that's the problem in our age, isn't it? You're always kind of trying to disconnect love from from the truth, and and that's that's always a that's always going to create problems. So hence hence the whole idea that authentic love uh, is implies uh, the use of right reason. So this is this is the way Saint Thomas would speak. We tend to think that the reason and love are an- antithetical. There's the heart and the head. Uh, this was uh, a dichotomy that Hawthorne used all the time, uh, and that they're at, at odds with your, uh, each other. Your heart is at odds with your head. Uh, that's not Logos. The, 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 the great thing about Logos is that it resolves all of these kind of di- these dichotomies. So, I mean, the classic one, I deal with this later on in the book, but it's uh, Descartes, who was absolutely disgusted with the religious wars of the 17th century. Uh, and decides to withdraw into some type of science, uh, uh, abstract geometrical world and divides the world into the res cogitans and the res extensa. And that basically wrecks thinking for up until this day, pretty much. Yeah. That's still, you, it's hard to get that out of your head. Once you think along those lines, it, it's impossible uh, to think otherwise. And it, he just erected a kind of Chinese wall across philosophy for centuries because of that. Uh, and it leads to two completely incompatible philosophies. So it leads to idealism on the one hand, where every, the, everything is thought and real, uh, matter is not real, or materialism on the other, where matter is real and thought is kind of epiphenomenal because of atoms bumping into each other. That's the legacy of Descartes. Obviously, Logos transcends this type of distinction. 
Mm-hmm. Especially when we consider that the Logos is incarnate, became man. That's right. So again, again, something uh, that a later guy by the name of Isaac Newton did not believe because he was a Unitarian. And so what you have with Newton is basically a Unitarian universe where all motion is only violent motion, uh, uh, that it, 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 some type of projectile motion. And he was good at tracking the trajectory of projectiles. And that was important for artillery for centuries. But it's not divine providence. And the universe is completely bereft of any type of sense that there is a, a hand guiding it. Now, the, the man who resurrected the hand without the body was Adam Smith, who took Newtonian physics and changed it from gravity to an inertia to uh, competition and uh, self-interest and retained the hand, but not the body. So you got the invisible hand reconciling. The, the invisible hand is a relic or a remnant of divine providence, a, a world that has become completely secularized by Newtonian physics, the hand is not connected to anything. And as a result, it doesn't make any sense. So, so the, the, uh, the modern philosophy, which was in a sense born with, with Descartes, uh, as you, you're, you're saying that he gives us both the kind of idealism that we see later in, in people like Hegel, but also he gives us the, materi- the, the materialism that we get in all of the scientific thinkers who just, you know, like these, these crazy modern cosmologists who right. all they can talk about is, is matter and they, they just deny metaphysical reality completely. Right. It, it was the logical, the logical conclusion of the, the, the Cartesian split of res cogitans and res extensa was idealism and materialism. And both of those came to fruition in the 19th century. One of the great, there's a, this is an aside, but one of the greatest scientific minds that I think is ever, there's a man, are you familiar with the work of Dr. Wolfgang Smith? No. So, so he, was, he was a great philosopher, he's a Catholic, he's still alive, he's very old, but he was a great philosopher who was also a scientist, and he, he, he's written voluminously on Descartes, against Descartes, and um, sort of unifying authentic science with um, with this 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 uh, with the the philosophical tradition that we get from the Greeks, yeah, and, and he's yeah. a Catholic, so he does it, you know, in a, in a very yeah. Catholic sort of scholastic way. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, to get back to the Trinity, uh, once this idea enters human history, you 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 have to take cognizance of it. You can't go back. Yeah. You can't go back. It's like a train. The train, well, you'll stand there. Either you get on the Trinity train or you get left behind in the station. (laughs) And the the classic uh, group that got left behind in the station because they didn't get on the Trinity train were uh, the Muslims who got their ideas of God basically from heretics, uh, primarily Nestorianism. So all the, all those heretics that got sent out of the empire, a lot of them ended up uh, in Saudi Arabia, and Aryan monks and Nestorians and Monophysites and God knows what else, they all ended. A lot of them ended up in Saudi Arabia. So that this is where Muhammad makes contact with them, right? Well, they the the Platonic Academy got expelled from Athens and it ended up in Persia, and Persia became uh, an important center for this type of thought, but. Uh, again, uh, Christianity in Persia was Nestorianism. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and so what you had here is the, the, the Roman Empire 
you had the Persian Empire, and then you have these people off in the middle of the desert, known as Arabs. And they're they're hearing stories, but they don't they, they don't have the context. The, the the Bible has the Bible has been translated into Syriac, uh, which is the language along the Hejaz, which is the the uh, the eastern shore of the Red Sea. Lots of commerce there, but the Arabs live in the center, which is completely in inhospitable to human habitation. It's a desert. It's very hot. It's hard to have any type of civilization there. And they, they're hearing these stories, but they don't have a Bible. And there's no way to kind of integrate these stories. And what happens is that someone t just says, well, I'm going to write my own book. And it's usually uh, attributed to Muhammad, who writes down this book called the Quran, which is full of all sorts of stories that... Yeah you can tell are basically misunderstandings of biblical stories. Yeah. The, 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 the Arabs and the, the Semitic peoples in general are good storytellers. That's what they do. Well, they, they, the, the Quran is full of uh, stories that are kind of interesting to hear. There's none of the philosophical, none of the wisdom literature, none of that stuff in the Quran, because uh, it's just not, they're not good stories. Uh, the good stories get <laughs> in, but, that, but then they get garbled in a way. So they, when you talk, they, they talk about a book, they don't have a, they don't have a word for logos. Okay, logos is a very abstract term, but so they, it, it turns out that it's a book. Suddenly, they're they're talking about this book known as the Quran, and it, when you the Quran is eternal, it came down from heaven. Uh, it was whispered into the ear of the prophet uh, Muhammad, and so on and so forth. And what you realize after a while is, and it's the source of all knowledge. And I and this is not an exaggeration. I've been to Iran many times. I was in Mashhad uh, talking to one of the mullahs. They're kind of like an impromptu debate. And I'm trying to talk about the wheel. And the mullah interrupts me and says, no, the wheel, that's not. I'm trying to say it was invented here. We were, we were in Golestan. It's the beginning of the Asiatic plane. I said it was invented around here somewhere. No, that's not true. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, a prophet explained how to invent the wheel. Ah. Uh. I said, well, how do you know this? He said, it's in the Hadith. Yeah. The Hadith are the commentaries on, on the Quran. Sort of collections of the sayings of Muhammad, right? Well, they're collections of all kinds. It's like the, the, uh, the Islamic Talmud, sort yeah. of. <laughs> okay, the, uh, sort of the extra-biblical tradition. Yeah, they're extra-scriptural extra tradition. And I said, well, first of all, uh, you know, I, I don't accept the, the Quran as canonical. I'm certainly not going to accept the Hadith as canonical. But what you what you what you're seeing here is basically a deduction from a principle, and the principle is sola scriptura, which is uh -huh. basically the Quran is the source of all knowledge. I think what they're trying to say here is, we're talking about logos. I mean, yes, if you're saying logos, logos is the summation in the sense of all knowledge, but they don't have that ability to abstract because they didn't study Greek philosophy, and so they have to always come up with some type of concrete symbol of something that is bigger and that can't be limited to something specific. So it's a book. Yeah. Yet, yet historically, when the Muslims ended up studying Aristotle, and there were great Aristotelian commentators on Aristotle, like Avicenna and Averroes, they ended up coming up with the two-truth theory, because something could be religiously true and philosophically false and vice versa all at the same time. 
And uh, this is what St. Albert the Great was assigned the task of sort of dismantling. But it's because they had come across the true philosophy of Aristotle, but it wasn't compatible with the Quran. No, no, they were, there was a conflict because the Quran, since it's based on Scripture, uh, believe, says that uh, the world was created, the universe was created. Aristotle said it's eternal. Yeah, but, well, there, but I, uh, you're, if you're a Varroese, uh, if you're Ibn uh, Ibn Rushd, you believe both. Yeah. Well, you can't believe both because they contradict each other. So how do you resolve this contradiction? Well, uh, a Varroism is always uh, the doctrine of two truths. You could say uh, there, there's dispute about whether Ipin Ruj, uh, whether Averroes was actually an Averroist, but the Averroism reared its ugly head in Paris at the time when Aquinas was there. And it says it was basically uh, C.J. of Brabant, who was a professor of philosophy, and his job was to teach Aristotle. And he says, that's my job. I don't have to I don't have to reconcile these things. Uh, I'm just telling you, Aristotle said the world's eternal. You got your story. I'm giving you Aristotle's story. And and the, the bishop, uh, Bishop Tompey, I realized this is this is going to destroy knowledge. We have to be able to resolve this. And uh, so it, there was a repudiation of, of, of Eroism at that time. There uh -huh. can't be two truths. Now, now. I, it if I can, if we can switch gears really quick, we have a, a little over five minutes left, Doctor. I just wanted to bring up another subject. Uh, speaking of Aristotle, when Ar Aristotle uses the word logos, and he talks about logos in a different way in his rhetoric, he he talks about the three different rhetorical uh, a, a, appeals, the modes of persuasion: logos, ethos, and pathos. And I, I, I I'm wondering if you can tie that in with. Um, what I think is one of your other great insights, and that is that you know logos is rising because you know we, here we can communicate with younger generations of people who have been sort of ripped off culturally and religiously and in many other ways intellectually, but who are who who are hungry for knowledge. So in convincing them, we have these three possible appeals: logos, ethos, and pathos. Of course, the, 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 they're all valid appeals according to Aristotle, but there's an order. There's a, there's an order there that we ought to respect. Yeah, the order is the soul, because that corresponds to the, the tripart uh, division of the soul. And, and, and the Greeks understood very well uh, that uh, Logos has to be in charge. It has to rule the soul through the, uh, through the will, and uh, what it rules is the passions. And so these, these, uh, these kids now have been raised in a world, uh, a world turned upside down, where passion rules where you have uh, basically incitements to indulge in passion that leads to all sorts of problems uh, from obesity to pornography addiction. And they are waking up to the fact, uh, or well, let's put it this way, they respond to uh, the, uh, the hopefulness that comes in the, the, in the description of the soul, which uh, says that Logos can rule, can rule these passions. Logos can tame these passions and you can lead a successful life because you can take control of these issues. That's a hopeful message uh, that is spreading now among this generation under the term you know, Logos is rising. So you have phenomena like last week, uh, a group of people boycotting pornography. Uh, and, that's and, unprecedented. Why would anyone do that? Why would anyone do that? Because they woke up and they realized if you let passion rule your life, you're miserable. And they woke up and realized they were miserable, and someone was there telling them that there's another alternative, and they acted on it. And this is shocking uh, to the oligarchs and their minions, especially in the, the scribblers who write their magazines for them. And so 
a Rolling Stone uh, wrote an article about these young guys and said that they were uh, bad people. They were anti-Semites because they were boycotting pornography. So if you if you avoid what we call de- delicately the sin of pollution, uh, and 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 looking at perverse acts uh, graphically depicted on a page or on your phone, uh, you're an anti-Semite. That's what they said. It's hard to believe, but uh, that's what they said. And of course, I can explain why they said that because I wrote a book called The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. Uh, and uh, 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 libido dominandi, which talks about how sexual liberation is a form of control. So the, the Jews were instrumental in creating the pornography industry. So they, the people at Rolling Stone know that, and they let the cat out of the bag when they said that. So they, th- this, is, this is a perfect example of, of overplaying one's hand, isn't it? To, to the, 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 that reactionary article in uh, Rolling Stone magazine, it's kind of like admitting, they're showing us how the sausage gets made, so to speak. That's right. That's right. And what you're seeing here is they, they are overplaying their hand. We are what, witnessing that right now. Hegel, to jump ahead to another guy, called this the cunning of reason. And he said, this is the list der Vernunft. Now, uh, this is how God takes human passion and turns it into good in human history. So, so we're back to St. Augustine in a way, too, because here, here, in the midst of all this depravity and, um, you know, infidelity and all these problems that we're seeing all around us that you've been writing about for years and others have, there is a reaction, and the reaction is, no, I'm not going to let you enslave me uh, to, my, to my base passions because I'm going to let reason guide me. That's right. That is the, the, people never heard this before. You know, it was it was it was there was kind of this emotional come to Jesus, these emotional religion, this emotional testimonial religion. But no one ever told them that that God is Logos is God. That's so, new. So they need to hear Saint John. They they need to connect the dots yeah. and know that this is a that this is a person, and it's not just an eternal person sort of floating around. This is the person who became incarnate and was nailed to a cross to save us from these passions and where they lead us. Right. And, and to be to be perfectly frank, you, you can't figure it out if, if, if in English, because who knows what it means to say in the beginning was the word. I didn't I mean, I don't know what that means. I didn't understand this until I studied Greek and I realized all the ramifications of the word logos that are simply not in the word word. Uh-huh. And every other all the European languages are pretty much the same. Even even Latin, uh, yeah. I think even Aquinas is handicapped in this regard because it's in principio erat verbum. Yeah, Saint Jerome expresses frustration that there was no one word in Latin that was adequate to translate uh, uh, logos. That's why we have to use the word. Yeah, we have to use this word. It's got to regain currency in in the English language. Because there's no other word, otherwise everything remains mysterious. Yeah. Well, Dr. Jones, I'm afraid that we've just about run out of time, but I, I'm, I'm most grateful to you. I think it was a very interesting discussion. I'm very grateful to you to, to agree to come on and, 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 and give us your expertise. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You've been listening to Reconquest on the Crusade Premium Channel. God bless and Merry Keep you.